Okay, look, James Bond. I don't know if you've got any James Bond fan here. Okay, we're waiting for the latest instalment, aren't we? It's all getting, getting delayed. Any ideas, Sid, when that may be? Right, Christmas, this Christmas. Okay, we may finally get uh, the Bond and the Mission Impossible we're waiting for. Look, Ian Fleming's Bond film, The World Is Not Enough. It's an old one now. Hit our address this morning is a play on that. Whereas the Bond film is The World Is Not Enough. This morning our address is The Passion Is Not Enough. Or in layman's terms, the cross is not enough. It almost sounds heretical, that does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you know, you ought to be picking up stones now, or a laptop, yeah, okay? But it, this is a theological statement. The cross is not enough. And it's important for us to remember that. I want to show you why. Okay, look, look. So who's behind the cross? Who's the, uh, to, uh, the protect? protect I mean, you know when you preach, you need teeth, and you need to have them in place. I'll, I'll skip that one, okay, for now. Okay, who's behind it? Okay, why didn't Christianity end with the cross? When you look at movements throughout the world, once you, you know, execute or apprehend the leader, what happens? They fall apart. They do. In almost every case, you know, you, you get to the heart of it, and the whole thing crumbles. If not immediately, then it begins to crumble. It certainly doesn't exist in full force 2,000 years on. You've got to think about this. This thing, this Christianity, that, that they said will just die out, 2,000 years on. I know we're a small reflection of it. I'm trying to see what must start to. We're a small reflection of it. But the worldwide church is, is a mammoth movement that's growing with pace. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but coming from the UK, the UK population is about 60 million people. Do you know that there's more Christians in China and growing daily than there is a population of the United Kingdom? Than the population of Australia three times and growing. There's future missionaries that are going to preach the gospel in Australia aren't English guys, okay, <laughs> right? They're going to be the Chinese and the African churches. Seriously, yeah, and, and people from the Philippines. These are the missionary nations bringing the gospel back, as it were. But the point I'm trying to make is that 2,000 years on, having apprehended and murdered, assassinated the leader of this small sect. It didn't stamp out Christianity. It spread. And it's growing at an incredible, incredible rate. You know, don't you, on Easter morning, even in Sydney, Australia, we can go to churches where there are 5,000 and more people meeting together at one time to worship Jesus. And so here's the thing. The passion or the cross is not enough. If Christianity ended there, then we wouldn't be here today. Seriously. If, if it ended there, it's what we said, and Charles is working on it, we're going to get a, a tombstone made here to sit behind that cross. 
Because, because if it ends there, we really would not be here this morning, really. And here's why. Okay, so look, our first thing is this. Jesus lays down his life of his own accord. The first thing about the cross we have to understand is that the cross has Jesus not just on the cross, but the cross has Jesus as the designer and the one who carries out its full capacity. Jesus both designs and carries out the cross. We're going we're gonna to take our verses from John 10, verses 17 and 18. And they're, they're these two lines. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. Jesus is absolutely clear that the cross that lay ahead of him wasn't accidental. It didn't take him by surprise and he doesn't just succumb to it. This is strong language. I lay it down and I take it up again. And we must, must, must just understand this as Jesus succumbing to the inevitable. You know, sometimes you know, we find ourselves in life succumbing to what's happening around us. You know, we have a little power. So for example, when Jesus is in Gethsemane, look at Matthew 26, uh, Judas uh, comes to him with a, with a band of armed men and Jesus responds, am I leading a rebellion? That you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I, I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me? So at that point, Jesus is by himself don't forget these 12 men begin to flee and he's, he's, he's apprehended and he, and, he, and he gives into that. He submits, doesn't he? He allows himself to be arrested knowing that he's going to be put on trial and executed. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying when he says, I lay down my life. You know, Jesus in that scenario is just succumbing. He's just giving up to, to what's going to happen. You know, he's, he's not going to be able to resist armed men easily. And yet Jesus is saying more than that. Listen again to his words in John 10. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay down. That's strong words. And the point is that the cross for Jesus isn't something that he succumbs to, but it's something that he designs and puts into process and sees through having the full capacity to do so. Here's the reality. I can't lay down my life. Not that easily. I don't have that kind of power. Now, you know, excuse the subject. You know, some people commit suicide. We know that, don't we? But that's not an easy thing to do. As people who come close to the position will tell you, that's not an easy thing to do. There aren't actually many people who can carry that through. Look, we have very little power over our own lives. But Jesus is very different. Here's what Acts 2.23 tells us. This man was handed over to you by God's set 
purpose and knowledge. So the first thing about Jesus laying down his life is in accord with who? It's in accord with his Father. And the thing about Jesus and his Father that their purposes are always aligned. They're always mirrored. They're always complementary. Romans 3, it was told there that God presented him. So Jesus and the Father working together. God is presenting Jesus as a sacrifice. Here's a, here's a conundrum for you. God is presenting Jesus as a sacrifice. God presented him. Who did, he, who did God the Father present Jesus as a sacrifice to? Have a think about this one. Who did God the Father present Jesus as a sacrifice to? Himself? Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's bizarre. Because the, the sacrifice, who? Every lamb that was ever sacrificed, excuse me, every lamb that was ever sacrificed was sacrificed to who? To God. Whose altar was it? God's altar. Okay. When Jesus was sacrificed by God. Remember? And this, this, is, this is the ricochet and the echo and the complexities and the brilliance of the Bible. Written over 1500 years by 39 authors. Okay. Over all parts of the globe. This is the wonder of it. When God said to Abraham. And Abraham says those words. Going to Mount Moriah. When his son asks him. Father here's the wood and the fire. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? What does Abraham say to Isaac? And when Abraham said these words. He could not have known fully what he meant. What did he say? He said that God will provide. Excellent. Yeah he did. God will provide the sacrifice. My son. What is happening? In Romans 3, that happened on the cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. God provided the lamb for the sacrifice. Those words that Abraham spoke, he could not have known that he spoke prophetically. And it would ricochet down the corridors of time until finally God himself would provide the lamb. For the sacrifice. God presented him as a sacrifice of Tom. And then in Acts 4, 27, 28, they did, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews, the Sanhedrin, verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. We have to look at the cross as Jesus, in conjunction with his father, in conspiracy, if you like, okay, okay, corroborating and together designing, assembling, and carrying out the cross. That's what's going on. It's the chief story of Christianity that this is no accident, it's not afterthought. In fact, in fact, I haven't got it in my text, but let me ask you. At what stage in time and history did the Father and the Son, as it were, sit down and think up and design and put into place the cross? Pardon? Thank you, Emma. It wasn't in, it wasn't in the garden when, when Adam fell and God was like, oh, goodness sake, what am I going to do with this mess? It wasn't then. It wasn't even at the time of the creation of the planet. We're told, okay, 
from the foundation of the earth. And the point of it is, before there's even one element on the structure of the earth, God and Jesus together, the Father and the Son, together corroborated and put into place a plan for the cross to apprehend a problem that hadn't even occurred. It's brilliant, isn't it? And here's the wonder of it. God made you, Stephen, and the planet that you live in ever before. Ever, God did all that, but ever before any of that, he wrote, he planned out, and he started the work of the cross of his son. And so, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin. He, he, here's, here's the detail. We didn't miss the illustration of the, of the car there, Nikki. Here's the detail. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is it there? What, what is the cross? That's what it is. Here's the detail. Here's where theology gets really complex. We said to believe in Jesus, to come to faith in Jesus, is just believing in him. But to understand Jesus, it gets complex. And here's some of the complexities of the cross. This is, this is the mechanics of the cross. This is what God was thinking when he designed the cross. That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That's some of the mechanics. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all this is from God who reconciled us to him through Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Charles, Montez. Catherine, Steve, Emma, Nikki, Naomi, Ralph, Peter, every other person in this building. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And the thing about this new creation, it's a continual, ongoing regeneration. You know the thing about, the thing about being born again? It's not a one-time experience. You and I undergo a perpetual regeneration a reborning no matter what sin we can be no matter how far we fall no matter how wicked we may be or become the blood of Jesus acts continually to regenerate to renew to re-cleanse to wipe clean to make whole again and again and again and again and again that's some of the detail of Good Friday and we've gone back a step because, because it just leads into where we're going so Jesus' cross pays for our sins here's what the resurrection does number two here's what the resurrection does Jesus' resurrection is integral to human salvation it's integral to human salvation and here's where some of the complexity comes in but we'll just try and unravel this a little by little. Okay, first of all, if the resurrection does, did not occur, if Jesus' death ends with his death, first of all, it makes everything that the apostles said a lie. What did Paul, the greatest New Testament apostle, write about Jesus? He wrote these words. I think we just read, read them. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him in our sin to become sin for us. He talks about this. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Jesus 
been resurrected to life. If the apostles wrote that Jesus came back to life, and it's proven or it's true that Jesus is still in the tomb, it makes everything alive. Number one. Number two, if Jesus is not resurrected, and here's when it gets complicated, our sins are not, or the forgiveness of our sins, and I word this correctly, the forgiveness of our sins is incomplete. Here's, here's, where, here's where we're going. Look, I lay down my life only to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. There's something about our forgiveness and our regeneration that is tied to the resurrection. Here's the three parts of it. The first part is the first part is this: a, the pouring out of the Spirit. Integral to our forgiveness and our resurrection to spiritual life is God's Spirit. Here's what Jesus says in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given for or since Jesus had not been glorified. Can you see something here? Here's what John is writing, that it's the spirit within that completes our regeneration, brings us to faith and forgiveness. And Jesus is talking about the spirit, but the spirit had not been given because the spirit would only be given when? When would the spirit be given into the world in order to actuate the power of the cross? It's when Jesus is glorified. Jesus' glorification on salvation, historical life, comes subsequent to his resurrection. He is resurrected and then he rises to the Father and he is glorified. And at that juncture, opens a floodgate of heaven. It happens in Acts chapter 2 and it brings a spirit into the world. And it's the spirit who does the work. We're going to see that. So the first point is this. That the Spirit, without the Spirit, there's no salvation. So John 3, verse 5, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of the water and the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3, 12, 3, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When was the Sydney Olympics? 2000 and... 2000, exactly 2000. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even there in Sydney, uh, we saw them some time back. You can see some of the remnants of the stadium. I hear it's coming again. I read that somewhere. Did you read that, Sid? It's due to come again at some time. Yeah, is that when it is? Thank you. 2026. And look, in the Olympics, of the relay race. Four men, normally. In the relay race, in order to win the relay race, which member of the relay team has to get across the line with a baton. The fourth. The first has to go to the second, to the third. Unless the fourth crosses the line with a baton, there's no champion. And I think we have to understand the resurrection is so integral to the cross, it's equivalent to a race where the baton has to be passed on. Jesus has to die. 
for he has to be resurrected so that he can be glorified and send the spirit who comes into the world and actuates what Jesus' cross or death does. Number one, he sends the spirit. Number two, the justification. So there is no salvation without justification. Someone, someone have a go. What is Christian justification? What, this justification is what makes us right with God. What's the word? What's the terminology? How does justification make us right with God? It's the act of God. Does anybody know these words? It's the act of God. Let me give you a, a, a help. If you're standing before the judge and there's all this evidence brought against you and it's phony evidence and the judge stands up and he says, this man is not guilty, okay? That's the act of justification. So, the ju so Christian justification is what? It's judgment. the act of God. Judgment. Yeah, it's the act of God saying that your sins have been judged in Jesus. I declare you are innocent, not guilty. Without that, we're condemned. Okay? The act of justification is when, we're, when our sins are forgiven, when the power of the cross becomes our reality, it's called justification. And here's what Romans writes, and it's a very important verse. He was, Romans 4.25, he was, Jesus was delivered over to death, the cross, for our sins and, perhaps we can read them together, and was raised, raised to life, life for our justification. That in some theological sense, that the raising of Jesus is tied to the act whereby God declares us not guilty. And so without the resurrection, there is no justification. And without justification, there is no salvation. Here's what a, a, an ancient theologian, John Calvin, writes on this, who sums up the meaning of those words. As it would have been enough, as it would not have been enough for Christ to undergo the wrath and judgment of God and to endure the curse due to our sins without his coming forth as a conqueror and without being received into celestial glory, that by his intercession he might reconcile God to us. The efficacy or the effectiveness of justification is ascribed to his resurrection. What Calvin is saying is that he, if Jesus just merely died, it would not have been enough. It would not have been enough if he wasn't raised, if he didn't return to the Father. So in some sense... That whole process is tied to Jesus coming back to life. Romans 4.25 He was raised for our resurrection, our justification rather. And the last one. The first one is that the resurrection of Jesus brings the Holy Spirit into our world. The second one, he brings our justification is when God declares we're righteous. And the third one, and the most the obvious one, one would know, Without Jesus' resurrection, there is no resurrection of anyone. No salvation. There's no salvation. I mean, okay, let me ask you, what is salvation? What is, I mean, to, we've got to think of salvation as, as the, something getting to a goal. What is salvation? What are we all waiting for? What is, what have we signed in for? Yes! To be saved from these desperate bodies. Okay? And to be given a new life. And to live how long for? Forever. That's what salvation is. To live forever with God. 
Okay. Up until Jesus' resurrection, had there ever been a resurrection? No. no. Thank you. Lazarus wasn't resurrected. What did Lazarus have? Yeah, he's just given him. He was just brought back to life. Okay, he had his body was the same. He lived the same amount of normal lifestyle. He operated the same. He was everything that he used to be before. The very first resurrection. By resurrection, we mean that a body that's no longer open to decay or wounding, that cannot die, that can function forever, that live in a new realm. The very first resurrection, the only resurrection that's ever been in the history of the universe is what? Jesus. He is the only person ever to be resurrected. He is the only one that is now living in a physical resurrected body. All the others, Moses, Elijah, John, and Lazarus has been resurrected. They are alive, but they're living as souls in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, in his soul, in his spirit. He is waiting for, but what's a thief on the cross waiting for? He is. The resurrection of what? His body. From where? Wherever he's buried. He's waiting for his body to be resurrected and, and for what to happen with that body and him. For it to be fused back together. He's waiting for his body and for his soul to be fused back together into a glorified body so he can live forever. He's waiting for a Jesus body. Jesus is the only one who has had his soul and his body resurrected, fused together, transformed, so that Jesus existed in one form. And what could he do? What could Jesus do in his resurrected body? When he was standing outside the door and the door was locked, what could he do? Walk through it. What could he do with food? Put it in him. What could he do about distances? He could be wherever he wanted. What could he do about being, by choosing to be on earth or in, in a celestial place? What could he do? He could choose to be wherever he wanted to be. He had this most incredible body. He's the first resurrection to ever occur. And what Jesus' resurrection tells humanity is, is that there is possible, because we've seen it being done, says the disciples, it is possible to have a resurrection. It is possible to get a body that can walk through walls. It is possible to get to a body that you can feed but doesn't need feeding. It is possible to get to a, have a body that can be wherever he wants to be, whenever he wants to be, that can never be killed, that can never suffer decay, that never suffers pain, that lives forever. Jesus' resurrection tells us, informs us, there's such a thing as a resurrection and the scriptures tell us and the scriptures tell us the one I was trying to quote earlier that Paul says if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile you're still in your sins you're to be pitied more than most men but verse 21 for since death came through a man and verse 20 rather but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep what is that 
what does first fruit mean? Look, those of you planted anything, once you get first fruits, what does it mean you're subsequently expecting? More! Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit, the first one of those who have fallen asleep, because what's going to follow after him? You, Catherine! Okay? Okay, so since death came through a man, okay, through which man did death, had death come through? Like when you were made, when, when your ancestor was made, Catherine, he was made to live forever. But through him, who? Adam came what? Death. Not just to him. Adam had no idea, did he, what he did to the human race. He didn't just bring death upon himself. He brought death to his entire generation to come. Since death came through a man, Okay, through one man, every human now faces death. The resurrection from the dead also comes through a man who? Christ. Jesus. Jesus. For as in Adam, all die. It's where every funeral is built. As in Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be resurrected to life. And here's a sobering part of this message. Let me ask you. Who of all the earth's population that have ever lived, who is included in the resurrection at the end of time? Those who believe. This is why I said it's sobering. Let me ask the question again. At the end of time, who of all the people who have ever lived will be resurrected at the end of time? Every single person who's ever lived will be resurrected. What did Jesus say in John 5? That the Son of Man at the judgment will speak forth and the dead, everybody who's ever died will be resurrected in their bodies. <laughs> Reuniting with their souls. Some to be with the Lord to live forever. But some to face eternal judgment. It's why we walk around the streets. And hand out leaflets. It's why we put on a gospel service every Sunday. It's why we give tithes and offerings to keep the work of the church going. It's why we send out missionaries to Cambodia. It's why we pray for empire. The resurrection will raise. Jesus' resurrection is telling us that one day every human ever to have lived will be resurrected, reunited with their souls, get a body like Jesus, for only some to be with Jesus and for the rest of humanity to face eternal ongoing judgment. The resurrection of Jesus then 
shows us that there is a resurrection. And to finish off on a positive, positive note, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world, lived a full human life to the age of early 30s, gave his life as a ransom for sin, and was resurrected by his power and the power within the Father, by the power of God's Spirit, to life, to a resurrected body. And therefore, there, thereby, put into place a plan whereby he sent his spirit into the world to empower gospel work, to empower people to believe, to empower us to say, Jesus is Lord. He sent his spirit into the world and through his resurrection he justified, declared righteous anyone who believes in him. Declare that you are right in God's sight. Your sins are no longer counted for. Your sins are no longer visible. God chooses to forget the sins of all who are justified. And his resurrection means your resurrection in him at the end of time. When he returns, he says he returns with an entourage of who? Who returns with him when he returns at the end of time? With the entourage of who? Of George! And your beautiful mom. And some of our brothers and sisters, and moms and dads. He returns of all who have fallen asleep in the Lord. And when he returns, he calls forth the dead. Okay, first, what we tell the author is that first, those who are in the graves are raised and reunited to be with Jesus. And then those who are still alive, of the church that's still on earth, they then were told, rise up and then meet the Lord together in the air. And we're forever with the Lord. And the process is completed then, if you want to know is that as we're with the Lord at that very moment, the earth is regenerated. Burnt up, regenerated. And then we descend back to this world. Brand new. In brand new bodies. To live forever with the Lord. One day, Christian, you and I will have our Easter resurrection. So believe, press on, and tell the world about this Jesus.